Chapter 12, Part 1 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. Edited by Gerald Burney Smith. Chapter 12 The Contribution of Critical Scholarship to Ministerial Efficiency. Part 1. The Method of Modern Education The essentials of a school are teachers and students. According to our new education, the primary office of the teacher is to teach, not thoughts or things, but human beings. He is not a superior being whose aim is to impart authoritative information to inferiors, sustaining to him the appropriate attitude of submission, passivity, and docility. Renouncing aristocratic aloofness, he becomes his student's guide and friend, developing their energy, independence, initiative, and resourcefulness. Learning by doing is the slogan in our modern schools as against the old watchword of learning by being told or taught. Accordingly, pupils are put in direct relation with reality instead of with symbols of reality. The content of life and environment is the subject matter which they study. It is not that the student is immediately fitted for some trade or vocation or profession, but that the material which he examines and elaborates is drawn from actual life itself. The new education aims to give neither mere book-learning, as was the case with an earlier scholasticism, nor the narrow and technical vocational training, as the present-day secularist craves, but to develop mind and body, to stimulate inventiveness, and to cultivate a judicial temper and habit, in order that the student may be prepared to become a happy and useful member of a democratic society. In a word, our new general education assimilates itself to the spirit of democracy and to the method of our sciences. Now, in what respect, if in any, does professional or vocational education differ from our ordinary education? By a professional school is meant an institution where students gain control of one specialized field of knowledge, of one particular industry or profession or calling, such, for example, as engineering or medicine or divinity. Professional schools, their history reveals this, have usually fallen into the extremes of an inherited scholastic bookishness or else of a narrow utilitarian practicism. To illustrate in the use of theology, this discipline was knowledge dissociated from life, a thing worthwhile on its own account, or else it was little more than drill in the usages and ceremonies of the church. In ages of rationalism and panlogism, it tended to be the former. It was the latter in primitive and medieval times. It may be doubted whether medicine and law are second to theology as exemplars of these extremes. In opposition to this scholastic education apart from active life, or this technical education apart from broad learning, the new education of the ordinary schools unites ideas and practice, work and the recognition of the meaning of what is done, learning and social applications. Happily, the conviction is maturing today that this unity should replace those theoretical and practical one-sidednesses in our professional education, that, advancing into the region of specialism, the matter of most importance is not familiarity with the body of ready-made knowledge, or skill in manipulating a technique, but knowing how to know, skillful in becoming skillful. At bottom, this means the formation of the kind of character and experience which, in their special modification, 
are required for the enthusiasm and service of humanity in that special profession. Thus, the primary function of any professional school is the unfolding and maturing of the right kind of man for the right kind of work. Both the school's science and practice are simply means to that end. It is neither the knowledge nor the practice in their abstractness, but the knowing and doing personality that is society's valuable asset. Now, it is in the light of such considerations as these that the serious problems of our theological education may be approached. Calling and Vocation There is a distinction, not philological, but historical and real, between the words calling and vocation. The significance of this distinction leads to the heart of our problem, so worthy of thus studying in a large way. Historically speaking, calling is providential, vocation is optional. Calling is religious, vocation is moral. Calling is a man's by motives deeper than his choice, wiser than his deliberations. Vocation is a man's by his own elective preference. In calling, a minister feels that he is a man of destiny. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. I was foreordained and set apart from my mother's womb for this work, a work in which the power of the eternal is at my disposal, is indeed my power. Without this feeling, the minister is sure to be shorn of his strength and robbed of his greatness among men. But in vocation one is looked upon as self-dependent, self-sufficient, self-accountable. To be sure, calling and vocation are not exclusive, but the objective and subjective, rather the divine and the human side, of the same experience. But historically they have fallen asunder. At the beginning of the modern world, Luther and Calvin both looked upon a man's work, no matter what it was, as his calling, as his by the providential will of God. Thus a man's work reposed on a religious basis. Men were what they were, doing what they did, by the power and plan and purpose of God. Such a conviction brought strength and stay and contentment. But in the eighteenth century the religious basis of all secular callings was undermined. The relative historical justification of this critical dissolution does not concern us here. The fact is that, along with science and art and education, the other orders of life dispensed with their religious foundation, and that capital, machinery, and technique came in to take their place. Accordingly, faith in the fulfillment of one's daily task came to repose in the latter rather than in the former. In all this one may see progress in a certain direction. Perhaps the heavens had to be emptied and clouded for a time, if men were to realize that they must stand upon the earth, develop the resources of the earth, and depend upon themselves. Yet this loss of the religious basis of secular callings is largely responsible for the sorry fruits of egoism and mammonism, of cynicism and pessimism. It may not be too much to say that the world of business needs nothing so much as to add to the confidence in technique and machinery and money the ancient faith in God, with his providential guidance over men's work and his peace and power in men's hearts. Labor needs to supply to its notion of vocation its former notion of calling. It watches, but it also needs to pray. The Secularization of the Minister's Profession Has an analogous development gone on in the sacred calling of the Christian ministry? Once there was the religious basis without machinery and capital, not even a salary, the ministry was calling, conscious of God's power and will, God's truth and cause, God's providence. 
the minister spoke with authority to the consciences and hearts of men. There was an accent of positive conviction that could not be simulated or mistaken. Men were made to face the tables of stone, the cross, and the great white throne. A supernatural significance and awe attached to human life as a probationary place of definitive and eternal decisions. The prophet and priest of God was a king among men. What has been going on? The sacred calling is duplicating in its own way the experience of the secular calling. The calling becomes a vocation. To be sure, this is but a moment in the total secularization of all life, which seems to be the set program of the modern world. The sacred calling is becoming desupernaturalized and, in a sense, despiritualized. So is its technique. But one sees in this great change the method of the evolutionary process fully illustrated. Life, characteristic of one era, survives increasingly unproductive and moribund in the subsequent period committed to new growths and species. At length, such life of the old order ceases in fact as it had already ceased in principle. This is true in the sphere of the higher life and processes of which we are thinking. Thus, in principle, though not yet entirely in fact, the divinity of the historic sacraments is gone, and of ministerial grace from ordaining hands. Gone is the origin of the sermon in the Holy Ghost, the open-your-mouth-and-it-shall-be-filled theory of preaching, the naive and primitive trust in divine afflatus. Gone is the preacher's living upon the capricious gratuities and donations of a flock, who felt that it was their place to keep him poor, God's to keep him humble, both prerogatives now arrogated to themselves. More serious still, the divinity of his church and of the doctrines and morals of his sermons, of the head of the church, of the specific God of his theology, these too are gone, and with them the old miraculous supernaturalism of regeneration and sanctification and perfection. Indeed, these words are quite unintelligible to the modern man on the street, and almost obsolete in the terminology of the theologian. What is taking the place of all this that once constituted the religious basis of the ministerial calling? In part, technique, machinery, capital, especially organization with the correlate of scientific efficiency of the churches in manipulating them. The dream is of a scientific ministry instead of the old religious ministry. The minister is not so much prophet and priest of God as an administrative officer of a philanthropic and humanitarian institution endowed by capital, which he is competent to execute. The church is not a temple, but a plant. The idea seems to be gaining favor that if men are fed and clothed and sheltered and washed and amused, they will not need to be redeemed with the old terrible redemption. In somewhat harsh antithesis, to be sure, one may say that not supernatural regeneration, but natural growth, not divine sanctification, but human education, not supernatural grace, but natural morality, not the divine expiation of the cross, but the human heroism, or accident, of the cross, not the supernatural spiritual brother, but the natural bodily brother, not the invisible religious communion of saints, living and dead, but boys' clubs and men's clubs and social settlements all run in the use of technique, machinery, and capital, with scientific efficiency clinically learned in a divinity school. And not Christ the Lord, but the man Jesus who was a child of his times, not God and his providence, but evolution and its process without an absolute goal, that all this, and such as this, is the new turn in the affairs of religion at the tick of the clock. 
It is the change that is going on from the old minister to the new, from the old church to the new. The Advantages of Modern Methods Now, is this progress? In a sense, yes. It was progress in the secular. The machine makes shorter hours possible, leaving time for possible personal improvement and social intercourse. A larger population can be provided for, and so forth. The same is true of the Church, with modern appointments and appliances, money and organization. We have but to think of how much better religion can be taught in the use of modern pedagogy, or of how much more systematically and wisely scientific charities can be administered, of how organized parish visitations can be carried on, of how the problem of the boy can be solved, of how church services can be conducted with beauty and finesse. All this is good and will doubtless grow better. Besides, the beliefs of the church which constitute the substance of the sermon are readjusted to fit more harmoniously into the sum of modern convictions. We shall not be able to go back behind all this in the world of the church any more than in the world of business. THE DANGERS OF SECULARIZATION But, for all that, we have the problem on our hands in the secular world as to whether machine and capital are primary, and personality and humanity secondary, or whether it is the other way round, the problem of whether man is for the sake of vocation, or vocation for the sake of man, the problem of man's spirituality and freedom and worth. But this problem can never be solved until there is the restoration of the long-lost religious basis of secular life. It is not science, it is faith, the communion of all men in and with God, that can make man the Lord and not the slave of capital and machine and organization. Only so can there cease to be the hard dominion of thing over person. Once again the laborer must return to the conviction that his vocation is a calling, his calling by the will and providence of God. A similar relationship needs to be maintained in the world of the sacred between the primary worth of personality and the instrumentalities and institutions of the church. The real church of God is a spiritual and invisible communion of religious faith. The real church of God is super-institutional. As man, any man, is more than a member of society, is super-social from the point of view of a social organism, that is, is a child of God, so the calling of the minister is more than so-called social service, and has to do with that deep of man which cries unto the deep of the being of God. There was a lonely hour at the brook Jabbok when Jacob's family and flock were out of his mind the peril of his angry brother forgotten, his heart corroded by no mordant memory, a lonely hour in which he cried, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name, the ineffable name. He wanted to know the eternal mystery and meaning of existence, not so-called social service, but the ministry of the interpretation and the satisfaction of this inexpungible and abysmal need of man is the supreme and inalienable function of the Christian minister. And this is a work where the peculiar worth of personality, religious personality, entirely dissociated from all the technique and machinery and capital of the whole ecclesiastical entity, is paramount. It were well to realize in thought what a reduction of human nature and human need there would be were man to be abridged to a point where what could be done for him by social service with its instrumentalities could satisfy him. Man has untranslatable wealth, supervocational vastness and verities and relationships. So has the minister, and it is this supervocational overplus that is the best part of the minister, and that lends chief charm and value even to the minister's vocational activity itself.
the value and the danger of efficiency. It is in the light of this larger perspective that one can evaluate the most characteristic watchword of the modern world, efficiency. The educational and ecclesiastical circles have borrowed it from the commercial world. It must be admitted that there is much value in the maxim. It is opposed to sloth. In the concentration and solidification which it requires, it discourages the spirit that reflectively divides the inner self and leaves it divided. And it emphasizes courage. To be sure, it is the courage to face rivals in the marketplace rather than the courage that meets one's own spiritual enemies. But for all that, we know in our hearts that this modern watchword is profoundly unsatisfactory in every sphere of life, particularly in the Christian ministry. What this watchword does not emphasize is the significance of self-possession, of lifting up our eye to the hills whence cometh our help, of testing the life that now is by the vision of the largest life that we can image and appreciate. In a way that appeals to a superficial populace with quantitative standards, it emphasizes results rather than ideals, vigor rather than cultivation, temporary success rather than wholeness of life, the greatness of him that taketh a city, rather than of him that ruleth his spirit. It points to a shallow pragmatism, missing the pragmatic depths. In its current signification, it is not correlated to man's deepest needs, needs which, from the point of view of this word, are super-efficient. Men are indeed suffering from poverty and dirt and disease, from manifold industrial and social evils. The minister must indeed sustain positive relations to these evils. But the worst evil is not such sufferings. The worst evil is spiritual destitution. Men are suffering far more from the loss of God and of the moral imperative than from the lack of bread and work, of recreation and amusement. What can silence the voice of the heart's pain? What can introduce a man defeated, lonely, bereaved, defenseless, into the region of eternal truth, eternal rest, eternal peace? Efficiency cannot answer such questions. These are questions common to all time. But our time is indeed an age of doubt, more widespread and more basic than the premature prognosticators of an age of faith seem to be aware of. The new world began in doubt. First there was a doubt of the Church and of its divine authority. A violent, devastating storm swept over popular life. The storm was speedily exercised. Again, the sea of faith was once too at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. Then from the old doubt a new faith emerged, like sweet waters in a bitter sea, and kept a man a living soul. The sea is calm tonight, the tide is full. The tide of the new faith was the faith in the Bible, and in the doctrines derived from the Bible, but this tide went back to sea, and now one only hears... Its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. The human spirit urged a new, mightier protest against the It is written, which was said to put an end to all doubt. The new doubt, as Protestant science, as free inquiry, flung down the gauntlet to the old Bible faith. No page of the sacred book remained unscrutinized. Only one certainty spread from this new doubt, the certainty that the sacred book was a human book. Therefore allowing and ever rejoicing in the moral and religious value of many a page, the biblical canon, as such, had no right to rule over man. Man was the book's judge, 
and the book was not man's judge. The book must be measured by man's truth, man's conscience. THE MODERN EXPERIENCE OF DOUBT How now should the timorous heart of man be quieted in the presence of this new doubt? At once new props were offered, for one thing the state. What the church was to the medieval man, the state became to the modern man, God manifest in the flesh. Men believed in their state as in their Christ. All power in heaven and on earth seemed to be given to it. What was preached in the name of the state was a gospel. It seemed a sin to doubt the wisdom of the state at all. It was blasphemy to contest the state's claim to omnipotence. Good? What is good, if not that which benefits the state? True? But where is their truth apart from the word that is the ipse dixit of the state? The political end sanctifies any means. Then a great change began. Historical study and the doctrine of development, together with the new ideals of personality and humanity, decomposed the old theory of the state. Modern man came to see that the state does not possess eternal life. The state is only a special form in which human social life can exist, not human society itself. There have not always been states. They came to be in the long course of the evolution of a people's life. What comes to be must pay its toll to father time. The state will change and pass. Thus its inerrancy and finality were discredited. If we doubt the church, why not the state too? Man's tottering life could not be braced up by either. Then new props were offered man. What science recognized as true, what morals and bourgeois customs recognized as good, these were offered him. Trust the light of science, and you shall indeed have the light of life. Do what is good, and you shall indeed be crowned with the crown of life. This was the watchword. Then there stirred in the womb of present-day humanity the last, ultimate, uncanniest doubt. If we doubt faith, why not doubt science too? If we doubt the church, the Bible, the state, why not doubt reason, doubt knowledge, doubt morality? Even if what we call true be really true, can it make us good and happy? Is not that which is called good grievous impediment in our pilgrimage? Law, morals, are not these perhaps a blunder of history, an old hereditary woe with which humanity is weighted down? Was Stendhal right, perhaps, in his judgment that the only excuse for God is that he does not exist? Here, here is the agony of the modern world. But what can our current efficiency do here, efficiency with its technique and machinery and money and organization? At this point the tragedy of life passes beyond the help of such things and of institutional religion. Is there no help for lost souls any more? The minister who cannot cope with this deepest need of the modern man may organize superficial and often impertinent reforms, but he cannot give the bread of life. He may minister to bodily wants, good enough in its way, but he leaves the soul in its bewilderment and forsakenness. In the end he loses confidence and abandons his fundamental task. Our fathers thought of the Christian minister as prophet, priest, and king. This watchword, efficiency, tends to restrict the ministerial function to that of king. But the need of the times, as of all times, is satisfied more fully by prophet and priest. In some, the great question is not that of efficiency, but the criterion of efficiency. It would be the minister's sin against the Holy Ghost, which hath never forgivenness, were he to truncate and abridge the nature and need of man, so that our institutionalized religion of scientific efficiency could sustain an easy correlation thereto. 
End of chapter 12, part 1.